Chapter Three of Uneasy Money. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Uneasy Money by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Three. On a westbound omnibus, Claire Fenwick sat and raged silently in the June sunshine. She was furious. What right had Lord Dawlish to look down his nose and murmur noblesse oblige when she asked him a question, as if she had suggested that he should commit some crime? It was the patronizing way he said it that infuriated her, as if he were a superior being of some kind, governed by codes which she could not be expected to understand. Everybody nowadays did the sort of thing she suggested, so what was the good of looking shocked and saying noblesse oblige? The omnibus rolled on towards West Kensington. Clare hated the place, with the bitter hate of one who has read society novels, and yearned for Grosvenor Square and butlers and a general atmosphere of soft cushions and pink-shaded lights and maids to do one's hair. She hated the cheap furniture of the little parlour, the penetrating contralto of the cook singing hymns in the kitchen, and the ubiquitousness of her small brother. He was only ten and small for his age, yet he appeared to have the power of being in two rooms at the same time, while making a nerve-racking noise in another. It was Percy who greeted her today as she entered the flat. "'Hello, Clare. I say, Clare, there's a letter for you. It came by the second post. I say, Clare, it's got an American stamp on it. Can I have it, Clare? I haven't got one in my collection.' His sister regarded him broodingly. "'For goodness sake, don't bellow like that.' she said. Of course you can have the stamp. I don't want it. Where's the letter?" Clare took the envelope from him, extracted the letter, and handed back the envelope. Percy vanished into the dining-room with a shattering squeal of pleasure. A voice spoke from behind a half-opened door. "'Is that you, Clare?' "'Yes, mother. I've come back to pack. They want me to go to Southampton tonight to take up Claudia Winslow's part. What train are you catching?' The three fifteen. You'll have to hurry. I'm going to hurry, said Clare, clenching her fists as two simultaneous bursts of song in different keys and varying tempos proceeded from the dining room and the kitchen. A girl has to be in a sunnier mood than she was to bear up without wincing under the infliction of a duet consisting of the Rock of Ages and waiting for the Robert E. Lee. Assuredly, Clare proposed to hurry. She meant to get her packing done in record time and escape from this place. She went into her bedroom and began to throw things untidily into her trunk. She had put the letter in her pocket against a more favourable time for perusal. A glance had told her that it was from her friend Polly, Countess of Weatherby, that Polly Davis of whom she had spoken to Lord Dawlish. Polly Davis, now married, for better or for worse, to that curious invertebrate person, Algy Weatherby was the only real friend Clare had made on the stage. A sort of shivering gentility had kept her aloof from the rest of her fellow-workers, but it took more than a shivering gentility to stave off Polly. Clare had passed through the various stages of intimacy with her, until, on the occasion of Polly's marriage, she had acted as her bridesmaid. It was a long letter, too long to be read until she was at leisure, and written in a straggling hand that made reading difficult. She was mildly surprised that Polly should have written her, for she had been back in America a year or more now, 
and this was her first letter. Polly had a warm heart and did not forget her friends, but she was not a good correspondent. The need of getting her things ready at once drove the letter from Claire's mind. She was in the train on her way to Southampton before she remembered its existence. It was dated from New York. My dear old Claire, is this really my first letter to you? Isn't that awful? Gee! A lot's happened since I saw you last. I must tell you first about my hit. Some hit. Claire, old girl, I own New York. I daren't tell you what my salary is. You'd faint. I'm doing barefoot dancing. You know the sort of stuff. I started in vaudeville, and went so big that my agent shifted me to the restaurants. And they have to call out the police reserves to handle the crowd. You can't get a table at Regelheimer's, which is my pitch, unless you tip the head waiter a small fortune and promise to mail him your clothes when you get home. I dance during supper with nothing on my feet and not much anywhere else, and it takes three vans to carry my salary to the bank. Of course, it's the title that does it. Lady Pauline Weatherby. Algie says it oughtn't to be that, because I'm not the daughter of a duke. But I don't worry about that. It looks good, and that's all that matters. You can't get away from the title. I was born in Carbondale, Illinois, but that doesn't matter. I'm an English countess, doing barefoot dancing to work off the mortgage on the ancestral castle. And they eat me. Take it from me, Claire. I'm a riot. Well, that's that. What I'm really writing about is to tell you that you have got to come over here. I've taken a house at Brookport on Long Island for the summer. You can stay with me till the fall. And then I can easily get you a good job in New York. I have some pull these days, believe me. Not that you'll need my help. The managers have only got to see you, and they'll all want you. I showed one of them that photograph you gave me, and he went up in the air. They pay twice as big salaries over here, you know, as in England. So come by the next boat. Claire, darling, you must come. I'm wretched. Algy has got my goat the worst way. If you don't know what that means, it means that he's behaving like a perfect pig. I hardly know where to begin. Well, it was this way. Directly I made my hit, my press agent, a real bright man named Sheriff, got busy, of course. Interviews, you know. And advice for young girls in the evening papers. And how I preserve my beauty, and all that sort of thing. Well, one thing he made me do was to buy a snake and a monkey. Roscoe Sheriff is crazy about animals, as aids to advertisement. He says an animal story is the thing he does best. So I bought them. Algy kicked from the first. I ought to tell you that since we left England, he's taken up painting footling little pictures, and has got the artistic temperament badly. All his life he's been starting some new fool thing. When I first met him, he prided himself on having the finest collection of photographs of racehorses in England. Then he got a craze for model engines. After that, he used to work the piano player until I nearly went crazy, and now it's pictures. I don't mind his painting. It gives him something to do and keeps him out of mischief. He has a studio down in Washington Square, and is perfectly happy messing about there all day. Everything would be fine if he didn't think it necessary to tack on the artistic temperament to his painting. He's developed the idea that he has nerves, and everything upsets them. Things came to a head this morning at breakfast. Clarence, my snake, has the cutest way of climbing up the leg of the table and looking at you pleadingly in the hope that you'll give him soft-boiled egg, which he adores. He did it this morning, and no sooner had his head
head appeared above the table then algy with a kind of sharp wail struck him a violent blow on the nose with a teaspoon then he turned to me very pale and said pauline this must end the time has come to speak up a nervous highly strung man like myself should not and must not be called upon to live in a house where he is constantly meeting snakes and monkeys without warning choose between me and we got as far as this when eustace the monkey who i didn't know was in the room at all suddenly sprang on to his back he's very fond of algy would you believe it algy walked straight out of the house still holding the teaspoon and has not returned later in the day he called me up on the phone and said that though he realized a man's place was the home he declined to cross the threshold again until i had got rid of eustace and clarence i tried to reason with him i told him that he ought to think himself lucky it wasn't anything worse than a monkey and a snake for the last person roscoe sheriff handled an emotional actress named devonish had to keep a young puma but he wouldn't listen and the end of it was that he rang off and i'm not seen or heard of him since i'm broken-hearted i won't give in but i'm having an awful time so dearest claire do come over and help me if you could possibly sail by the atlantic leaving southampton on the twenty-fourth of this month you'd meet a friend of mine whom i think you'd like his name is dudley pickering he made a fortune in automobiles I expect you've heard of the Pickering automobiles. Darling Claire, do come, or I know I shall weaken and yield to Algy's outrageous demands. For, though I'd like to hit him with a brick, I love him dearly. Your affectionate Polly Weatherby. Claire sat back against the cushioned seat, and her eyes filled with tears of disappointment. Of all the things which could have chimed in with her discontented mood at that moment, a sudden flight to America was the most alluring. Only one consideration held her back. She had not the money for her fare. Polly might have thought of that, she reflected bitterly. She took the letter up again and saw that on the last page there was a postscript. P.S. I don't know how you're fixed for money, old girl, but if things are the same with you as in the old days, you can't be rolling. So I've paid for a passage for you with the liner people this side, and they've cabled their English office so you can sail whenever you want to. Come right over. An hour later, the manager of the Southampton branch of the White Star Line was dazzled by an apparition, a beautiful girl who burst in upon him with flushed face and shining eyes, demanding a berth on the steamship Atlantic, and talking about a Lady Weatherby. Ten minutes later, her passage secured, Claire was walking to the local theatre to inform those in charge of the destinies of the girl and the artist number one company that they must look elsewhere for a substitute for miss claudia winslow then she went back to her hotel to write a letter home notifying her mother of her plans she looked at her watch it was six o'clock back in west kensington a rich smell of dinner would be floating through the flat the cook watching the boiling cabbage would be singing a few more years shall roll her mother would be sighing and her little brother Percy would be employed upon some juvenile deviltry, the exact nature of which it is not possible to conjecture, though one could be certain that it would be something involving a deafening noise. Claire smiled a happy smile. End of chapter 3 Reading by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org